Get it in here. I got one thing to say. This is when the big dogs come out. Damn right. Okay? Damn right. You can't roll with the big dogs. Stay on the board. Let's rock this place. Let's have some fun. In the entertainment capital of the world, it's the T.C. Martin Show. We are seeing a special performance tonight. Diagnosis, prognosis, osmosis. It's time to get your daily prescription from the doctor, T.C. Martin. I want to know what the hell he's smoking. The doctor is now in. And a good Wednesday to you, middle of the work week, proverbial hump day. Yes, it is. T.C. Martin, Ballpark Frank with you. Two hours, nonstop sports talk coming your way as usual right here. Numchuck on the other side, in the mix, live and in color as well. Nice show on tap for you today. Trevor Maddich is going to join us, our good friend from ESPN, the 15-time Emmy Award winner, college football analyst, and we will dive deep into The decision by the Big Ten to allow Ohio State to move forward and play in its conference championship game. What does that mean for the Buckeyes? What does that mean for the rest of the conference? And, of course, the bigger picture, the college football playoff. We'll dive into all that with Trevor Maddich. A little bit later on, James Donaldson is going to join us. James, a 14-year NBA veteran, another 7-footer from Sacramento, by the way. So that will be good. And James has a new book coming out as well, too. So look forward to talking with him. Scott Spritzer will join us next hour, and uh, we'll talk to Scott regarding a busy NFL weekend coming up. College, not so much. More and more games getting canceled, but we'll go through the board there with that. And uh, Scott Spritzer will join us a little bit later on. All right, so glad to have everyone uh, with us today. And uh, we have some college basketball news we'll get to a little bit later on. You'll hear some audio from uh, Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski from Duke, who got beat down last night by the fighting Illini. I was watching a lot of that game so because yeah. I actually thought that game was a little bit more exciting than, uh, than the football game in some respects so um, but yeah uh, Illinois looked good last night and Coach K said some stuff and you know in this era of social media too I was checking out the Twitter sphere and different things like that and a lot of people basically saying that uh, the things that Coach K was saying he wouldn't be saying if he had a top five team. I don't know, and we're going to play a good amount of his uh, press conference from last night. But And I thought it was very interesting what he said. The NCAA has not commented because basically, and you'll hear it later, Coach K talking about should we be out there playing. But he did say this is coming on the heels of us getting our butt kicked. And that was basically the, the quote verbatim from him. He goes, hey, I, I got my butt beat down tonight. And he closed his press conference by saying – you know, yes, uh, Illinois beat us up pretty bad. Uh, we're not very good. God bless. Everyone have a good night. <laughs> so and, and I know, thought that was pretty genuine, pretty pretty real, actually. No, I do, too. And, and, and again, watching that game, and I know we say it all the time, and people are used to it, and, that, and I've said it before, that I've, I'm used to the no fans being there and that. But there is something that's eerie or just weird about watching the Cameron crazies just being cutouts of people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, and I agree with you. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, when we're handicapping this, too, from a betting uh, perspective, there are certain home courts that are definitely much more valuable than others. And that goes for every sport. I mean, football, you could say the exact same thing. College, NFL. Um, and it, last night in, in Cameron, I said to myself, well, you know, Duke has such an advantage, a home court advantage playing there. But that's going to really be negated. And I turned on the game last night, and like you said, I was like, 
Oh, are there fan? Oh, no. Those are cardboard cutouts. I feel like I'm yeah. watching Major League Baseball again. And, and cardboard cutouts don't intimidate officials either. They so don't. They didn't even necessarily get all the calls that they sometimes allegedly get. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk uh, about Coach K's comments regarding college basketball and uh, give you the UNLV update as well, too. Remember, their game was scheduled for tonight against Eastern Washington. That game canceled uh, due to someone on the Rebels having COVID, whether it's they haven't told us exactly who, player, staff member. So we'll get into all that a little bit later on. All right, so uh, the big news, obviously, is Saturday's Michigan-Ohio State game canceled. We talked about that yesterday. Michigan canceled the game due to the increased number of positive COVID cases. Uh, the Big Ten athletic directors had a meeting this morning and lasted all the way into the afternoon to figure out exactly what to do. Now, the team, as you know, uh, must play six games to be in the conference championship game. Purdue and Indiana canceled their practices today. They were supposed to play each other, so there's a couple more teams that are, are probably going to you know, be short of their quota as well. But uh, the big issue was Ohio State had five games played. They needed to have a sixth game to be played for them to participate in the Big Ten championship game, which is going to be against Northwestern on December the 19th. And with their game against Michigan being canceled, they, according to the rules, they were going to fall one game short. So as we talked about yesterday, what are the options? Pick up another game against you know, Indiana if they were available, especially you know, if, if their game was going to get canceled this week. You even brought up there was talk about playing Texas A&M. We figured, well, that sounds good, but probably not likely they're going to play outside of their conference. Yeah, Big Ten probably would not allow that. Right, right, right. But uh, So after the meeting today, the Big Ten athletic directors got together and said, hey, we're going to probably we're going to change this rule so Ohio State can play in the conference championship game. More importantly, what this does, it gives op- uh, the opportunity for Ohio State to participate in the college football playoffs as well, too. And that's the goal. That is the goal, yeah. So as this was unfolding this morning and – no one really hearing anything. This scenario came up too. Said, "Well, Maryland's available, so Ohio State could actually play Maryland uh, if uh, if you know if the Indiana uh, game. You know that that didn't go through, and Indiana you had called off their practice, like Purdue called off their practice. So again, it was just a a big cluster. So." Let's bring in our good friend, Trevor Maddich from ESPN, who I know is uh, on, on top of this, has it all broken down for us, and he can explain some sort of a semblance to some logic or sanity or how about some common sense? Is there any common sense, Trevor, in the Big Ten or college football well, for that matter? You know, there's common sense and there's, I think, a lot of uh, grief right now in the Big Ten uh, because of what they did. You know, I think most people agree that what they did was right, unless – you're an Indiana Hoosier fan because to Indiana fans, it will look like they changed the rule at the last second to elevate Ohio State over Indiana for Indiana's rightful place in the Big Ten championship game. Now, what makes it, what makes it morally okay is that they did play head-to-head and Ohio State did win that game. But had they not changed the rule, it would have been Indiana playing for the Big Ten championship. And I'll bet you a whole lot of Indiana fans are not going to split hairs quite, th- quite enough to get to that point. And you're right about that. We touched upon that yesterday because if Ohio State was not able to play that sixth game, then Indiana would be in there. And we talked about this yesterday. It was like, hey, well, Indiana and Ohio State can play each other, but why would Indiana want to do that 
if it, it would mean that for them not playing the game and with the Ohio State game against Michigan being canceled, it would put them in the Big Ten championship game to play Northwestern. Right. And the rule was changed to favor Ohio State. It would be one thing if that were the rule the entire time. It would be one thing if they had changed the rule a month ago or two weeks ago. But the fact that they just now changed it, and with no games having been played, they flipped who was going to the championship game for the Big Ten East division. That's where Indiana fans, I think, are going to be absolutely livid. But why do you do that if you're the Big Ten? You do that because your best chance to make the playoff is Ohio State. If it is Indiana with one loss against Northwestern with one loss, it really doesn't matter which team won the Big Ten championship. Neither one of them would go to the playoff. It just wouldn't. Exactly. For Ohio State, if they did not uh, go to the Big Ten championship game because of this rule, but then picked up a sixth game on championship weekend because all Big Ten teams that are not COVID, you know, have problems with COVID are going to play on championship weekend anyway. So Ohio State could very well and would pick up a, a sixth game if they – uh, as long as they could play, somebody would be slotted in there. Ohio State would still be 6-0 and and eligible to make the playoff from the committee standpoint, just not the Big Ten championship game from the Big Ten standpoint under the previous rule. <laughs> Excuse me, but there's no guarantee that that would happen because then you would have Ohio State sitting out there as a non-champion with six wins, with only one win against a team that's highly rated by the committee, which is Indiana, and they'd be in competition with teams like Texas A&M for that fourth playoff spot. A&M is a non-champion. The only game they lost was to Alabama. Ohio State never faced a team like Alabama this year. And they had that big win over Florida, sitting there at number six. And so the committee might have the excuse, or would have the excuse, to put Texas A&M in over a six-game Ohio State. This is why the Big Ten was desperate to figure out a way to get the Buckeyes into the championship game. Because if they win then, then they are an undefeated Big Ten champ, regardless of how many games that they played, and that gives them extra juice. All right, so Ryan Day, the head coach of Ohio State, had this to say prior to the decision coming down. Uh, I think it's one of those things that was put into place early on, and um, you know, decisions are made based on the information you have at the time, and then things change, as we know. And I just think um, you know, we have to take a hard look uh, periodically at all this stuff. And I think that this is one of those situations, and uh, you know, if if we don't quite get the the games we need to get into the championship game, then I think that needs to be looked at hard, just like anybody else in the conference. Um, but there's no easy solution in times like this. So, um, you know, I know those guys are going to come together and, and take a hard look at it and, and make sure that it was the right decision. All right, Trevor, as you know, we have talked about this in the past. The Big Ten has been a fiasco, and in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinion for that matter, they did this to themselves. I mean, they're indecisive, you know, to start, not to start. They got the late start. No other conferences have this issue, and we've been spending a lot of time, majority of the last few weeks, talking about the Big Ten. Are they going to have enough games? Uh, So now it looks like we know what's going to happen. Um, is, Is this the right decision. I, and, and I think you probably already answered that. Again, from Indiana's perspective, no, it's not. But if the rules are set in place for rules, why even have the rules in the first place? Right. The, the original decision they made on August 11th to not play fall football, to postpone it to the spring, was, I think, something they did too soon. 
putting in this rule that you had to play at least six games based on a formula that they would have. It's a little more complex than that, but it came down to that at the end of it all. It was something they all agreed to, but maybe it wasn't necessarily the most uh, something that they would have agreed to again if they could look back at it. They may have made it a little bit different in the way that they did it. They may have allowed extra allowance, not six, but five, that kind of a thing. Uh, so, so I get that. But the fact that they did change the big decision, which was to not play in the fall, to, yes, we're going to play in the fall, makes it easier for them to change this as a smaller decision to do this. And if I'm Indiana, once again, I'm, I am absolutely livid. But at the same time, you can make a really good case that if you make a bad decision, if you make a bad rule, and it's causing bad things to happen for your conference, you're better off fixing it than to say, well, we made the rules, so we're going to stay with it. And, and give the Big Ten credit. They made the big change to play in the fall. Now they're making a smaller change to have a chance for their best team to have the best chance to be uh, selected for the playoffs. So, you know, I, 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 I'm really upset because Indiana is going to feel like they're going to feel, and I kind of feel the same way. But at the same time, I cannot say that the Big Ten made the wrong decision here. I do respect their willingness to take the heat for changing a decision when they otherwise would have taken the heat for not taking changing the decision. You might as well do the right thing if you're going to take the heat anyway. Understand that Indiana is going to be upset, but how about the rest of the teams in the conference? How do they feel about this? Because I know Michigan's athletic director came out yesterday, and he said that they should be allowed to play. Now, part of it also is because, like you mentioned, it's kind of the money grab, too. They want to get in that championship series and, and have that distributed amongst everybody. And also, what happens, not that I think it's going to happen because they're going to be a huge favorite, what if Northwestern upsets the apple cart? How bad does the Big Ten look if Northwestern actually beat Ohio State in that championship game? Well, if Northwestern beats Ohio State, they would have beaten Indiana anyway. Keep in mind, Indiana's running on a backup quarterback. He's a good one, Jack Tuttle. Jack Tuttle actually is not just a dude. He's a guy that, that is very, very capable. But still, it will be seen as you know beating a team with a backup quarterback. If Northwestern is able to do that, then I would also want to do some testing on Northwestern because Northwestern's <laughs> offense is kind of peaked, and if they're able to keep up with Ohio State, they may have had a little bit of jet fuel added to pregame meal. Uh, and by jet fuel, I mean actual jet fuel. You know, not uh, I don't suggest that they took anything untoward. I'm not saying that, but you know, but if they if they did beat Ohio State, Northwestern would have to go to the playoff because they would be a one loss Big Ten champ with a couple of good wins in their division, but with one of the marquee wins in the nation in beating undefeated Ohio State in the championship game. So that would upset the apple cart as well if Northwestern were to knock off Ohio State. That's an interesting thing. Northwestern really can't beat Ohio State in this game. Only Ohio State can beat Ohio State in this game. But the possibility exists. I agree with you. Trevor Maddox joins us from ESPN talking about the Big Ten's decision to back off the six-game minimum and uh, let Ohio State compete for the Big Ten championship. It'll be December the 19th, and they will face that Northwestern team. And again, Trevor, I agree with you. I don't think that Northwestern can beat Ohio State. I know a lot of people say, well, look what they did to Wisconsin. They shut them down completely. But this Wisconsin team is a fraud, too, as, as we've noticed as well. But when you look at Northwestern, yeah, strong defensive team, but offensively challenged. I don't know what you're going to get with Northwestern uh, you know, against a 
a rested Ohio State team that has Justin Fields maybe you know uh, you know focused and ready to go here. I mean, this has all the makings of, of being a, another blowout, and we've seen this with Northwestern before. They're a nice little story, but when they play the big boys, especially in meaningful games, they usually get blasted. Although, T.C., we're assuming that Ohio State will be rested. Keep in mind that they played their previous game, Michigan State, missing 23 guys, including three starting offensive linemen and their starting inside linebackers. So, you know, their stud inside linebacker, defensive play caller. And they still blew out Michigan State because Michigan State is just terrible. But the possibility exists that Ohio State could go into that game shorthanded again. And we don't know if Justin Fields would be able to play that game if he's one of the people that either tests positive or gets contact traced because of it. So, you know, right now there is a lot up in the air. I think on paper people are thinking, okay, Ohio State, they're in the championship game. They're going to win it. Now what? But hold on now because Northwestern's defense can do stuff to a depleted Ohio State offense, depleted by COVID, if that should happen again, that Michigan State was not able to do. And that's an interesting thing that you bring up there because what if a scenario does arise, whether it's in the Big Ten or some other conference, where one of the teams playing in a conference championship does have a COVID issue and they can't play in that championship game, would the other team just automatically be that conference champion's winner? Will there be alternates sitting by that maybe can slip into a conference championship game? Have conferences made provisions to try to figure out because that is, as we know in this year, Maybe not a likely, but a possible scenario. You know, Trevor, it sounds like we're getting a Miss America or Miss Universe competition now. We we need alternates. (laughs) We need alternates. That's right. Or it's like the Pro Bowl. It's like, okay, you you and you are in the championship game. First runner up. You and you will practice as if you're going to be in the championship game. And on the off chance, there's an opportunity you can step right in. Otherwise, hey, congratulations, you got some extra work in. That's an interesting point, though. I mean, what would happen if you can't play? And the Big Ten, I think, is the hardest one to deal with because – You've got a 21-day quarantine period in the Big Ten, which is more than anybody else. I don't even think the Pac-12 has that long of a quarantine period. That was part of the compromise that allowed the Big Ten powers that be to, uh, to permit the season to be played in the fall instead of the spring, that 21-day compromise for extra safety for the players, right? And if this championship game, it can't be postponed. If there's too many players that are out and they're out for 21 days, that's it. So then what happens to the other team? Are they considered the Big Ten champ? Is there no Big Ten champ? That's a very good question. Unbelievable. All right, Trevor Matz joins us. Trevor, let's talk about the college football playoff rankings. Seems pretty simple, I think, where everything is at right now. We're talking about you know, Alabama on, on top, and of course you've got Notre Dame and you've got Clemson. And Give us some thoughts here. Uh, we do have a couple games left. We have some conference championship games here. Uh, notably, you know, Alabama, Florida, Clemson is going to play Notre Dame again. Do you think the winner automatically uh, of this game is is going to be in if it is Notre Dame? If they uh, beat Clemson, you know, twice, Clemson beats Notre Dame. How do you think this thing is? Is it just these four, or do we have to seriously consider looking at maybe a Texas A and M, uh, a Florida, or somebody outside, and lo and behold, bring up Cincinnati again? How about Iowa State? Yeah, Cyclone Power. <clears throat> and by the way, how about Oklahoma? I, I love and Oklahoma. I love Oklahoma because yeah. no, and we talked about this before. In my opinion, I know they lost two games, but no one's really playing better football than Oklahoma right now. I mean, you could, of course, yeah. Alabama, but outside of Alabama, Boomer Sooner all the way. Yeah, the offense is uh, back to being balanced after being really a, a one legged stool with just the passing game 
with a new young quarterback in Spencer Rattler, who was also working through his issues early in the season. The offense now is more complete. The defense is leading the Big 12 in a lot of categories. They've become much more aggressive, much better at sacking the quarterback, much better at, uh, at disruption. And so, yeah, you're right, Oklahoma very quietly after those two losses has snuck right back into the, the eye test of being one of the best four teams in the country, in my opinion. But uh, I think as you look at the top four, Alabama is in, probably in anyway. I mean, if they lose a tight one to Florida, they're probably in anyway. They've been number one pretty much the entire time. And if they lose a tight one to Florida, I don't know that, that the committee would bounce them out of there. If they got blown out, that would be a different thing, but I doubt it. So, and by the way, Florida could beat them with that offense. It's possible. They'd need to get hot, catch lightning in a bottle, but they've got the players to do it. Clemson and Notre Dame, if Notre Dame wins, Clemson's out. That's it. Two losses, you're done, bye-bye. The, uh, if, if Clemson beats Notre Dame and avenges their regular season loss, then I think it'll come down to what that loss looks like for Notre Dame. If, if it's a competitive game, I think they're both in. I think they both stay in. The committee definitely has the option to dump Notre Dame if they lose to Clemson, but I don't know that they would because I think they think this is one of the four best teams in the country and this would be their only loss. So, so it's possible for there to be some space created up there for Notre Dame to beat Clemson. They, they, could, they could do it. Now, if that happens, then you've got a space open for A&M or Iowa State or Oklahoma. I think that's the most likely thing. I don't think that Cincinnati could jump up their absent alien abduction of a bunch of teams in front of them just because they actually dropped uh, from seven to eight in this most recent poll. I think their schedule is just not going to allow them to get up there on their own, uh, their own power. So uh, Florida, if they beat Alabama, they're in. If they don't, they're gone. And Iowa State moves up one. Now you've got Iowa State and Texas A&M sitting there. Now, assuming that Texas A&M doesn't falter, and I don't think that they will. They might, but assuming they went out, um, you would have an un, a two-loss Big 12 champ, either Iowa State or Oklahoma, or a one-loss non-champ Texas A&M to go into that fourth spot should space be created up there by the Notre Dame-Clemson game, if Notre Dame is able to beat Clemson. So it'll be interesting to see what the committee might do. We have figured that the Big 12 has been out of it for a long time when it was clear that their champ would have at least two losses. But Iowa State popping up to number seven, and with reasonable scenarios ahead of them, if they beat Oklahoma, same way with Oklahoma at number 11, but when you look at the teams ahead of them, if they beat number seven, Iowa State, they're going to jump ahead of everybody except Texas A&M, and maybe they'll jump ahead of them. So right now, it's that fourth spot has a lot of churning and a lot of possibilities. Trevor, let's go back to Ohio State for a second and tell me if this scenario comes into play maybe for the committee here. Since Ohio State is only playing six games and everyone else is playing around 11 games and Ohio State, even though they'd be undefeated, really would not have a signature win on their schedule and playing five less games than anybody else. How much of that do you think factors in where people say, you know what? We've seen more and more of these other teams probably have some better quality wins because that's always a discussion. Or does it just is Ohio State in the brain here saying, well, you know, deep down inside, we really think that they're, you know, a top four team? Well, you know what? They, Ohio State has played five games, right? Right. They've got five wins, one win over a team that's currently ranked, and that's Indiana at number 12. And they looked sloppy in that game, but they did get the win. 
behind them. You've got a seven-win Texas A&M, who's got a win over number six, Georgia, a better win than Ohio State's best win. You've got uh, an eight-win Florida team that's got a win over Georgia. Uh, so they've got a top-ten win as well, right, that are be- that's behind A&M, or excuse me, by- behind Ohio State. And the Buckeyes only have five games, five wins. So this is kind of interesting because it seems like the committee, with Ohio State but really nobody else, is saying, yeah, it's not their fault that COVID has has wrecked their schedule, so we're just going to look at the tape and we think they're one of the best four teams in the country. They're not doing that with teams like Cincinnati. They're not saying Cincinnati doesn't deserve to be ranked higher than eighth. They're saying Cincinnati's schedule doesn't give them enough juice to be higher than eighth. But they're not saying that about Ohio State. Now, Cincinnati doesn't have a win like Ohio State's win over, over Indiana. I get that. But A&M and Florida right behind them, and Iowa State, by the way, right behind them, all have wins that are better than Ohio State's best win, and they have more wins overall. So it'll be interesting to see what the committee does because they have been inconsistent in their application of the relative weight of eye test versus schedule strength and best win. They're not consistent right now, and we'll see how they shake it out now in the next couple of rankings. Is it fair to say that to some extent the reason that Ohio State's in this position is because everyone expected them to be so good before the season started that to now say that maybe they're not as good and we've seen some of these other teams would kind of be like admitting that they were wrong at the start? So it's like until they prove that they're not as good as we thought they were going to be, we're going to assume that they are? You know, it may be a little of that. They're not supposed to think that way. They're supposed to tear up previous rankings and start fresh, start new right now. But the committee members are human. I think Ohio State put themselves in jeopardy when they were sloppy on defense in some of their wins before the Indiana game. They were 4-0 going into Indiana, uh, or 3-0 going into Indiana. But they were a little bit sloppy at times on defense, especially giving up a lot of uh, passing yards and touchdowns. Then Indiana threw for almost 500 yards against them and almost won that game on the strength of their passing game dominating the Buckeyes' pass defense. Well, then the following game for Ohio State was Michigan State, and they seemed to tighten up some of the things that they had trouble with their secondary earlier in the season, things like communication and assignments and stuff like that. And you can make the case for Ohio State that other top teams' defenses struggled early as well because of COVID, where you couldn't get the practice in you need to get in, so communication suffered, assignments, tackling suffered. That didn't just happen to Ohio State. It also happened to Alabama. It happened to others as well. But now it seems that Ohio State has cleaned some of that up, but all we have is evidence of that is the Michigan State game. So the committee right now, they're, they're, kind of in a, they're kind of in a bind to figure out how good Ohio State is. The expectation was that Ohio State would be utterly dominant. But you've got to remember that when you watch this Ohio State team, team on tape and compare it to last year's, this Ohio State team is not as good as last year's on defense. Offense, this is a really good offense, although they're not as dynamic at running back, but the offense is still really good. Defense, not so much. As a matter of fact, I thought last year's Ohio State uh, team, if they had won the semi, they were a much better matchup for Clemson and Joe Burrow in the final than, excuse me, for LSU and Joe Burrow in the final than Clemson was because of their pass rush. I mean, they had Chase Young coming off the edge, and we see how he's been lighting up the NFL right now. And then they had Jeff Akuda, one of the best shutdown, if not the best shutdown corners in college football last year. If they could have gotten past Clemson into the final last year, uh, then I think Ohio State had a good chance. This year's Ohio State team is not that team. 
All right, he is Trevor Maddich. You can catch him on ESPN. Going to be uh, making the picks uh, on SportsCenter coming up Friday? Uh, you know what? They haven't called me yet. If they want me to, then I will. Okay. And if they don't, then uh, hey, it just uh, I'm sitting at fifteen and three right now against the spread. So you know, maybe they want to protect my record. I don't want that, but uh, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Maybe fifteen and three. Uh, you should be uh, getting on a plane and coming to Vegas and, and putting that down. That's what you should be doing. I, I think my friend. Well, uh, if I could duplicate that, I would absolutely be doing that. But that's why I live in Nashville. I don't know that I can. Uh, we'll see. One eight hundred Trevor. There it is. Yeah, exactly. there you go. There you go. All right, my friend. Hey, appreciate the time as always. We'll let you get back to it. Great stuff as always, and we look forward to talking with you. And I, and I do want to pick your brain about some of this NFL stuff because your uh, former team, the football team, uh, all of a sudden they look like they could be a playoff team. So we got to reconvene and talk about that here real soon too. Yeah, absolutely will. And I would give one piece of uh, one suggestion to the both of you. Mm-hmm. Please eat your sushi off of a plate. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's a thing here in Vegas, you know. I mean, there's as long as there's I'm just sea- saying. as long as there's seaweed, but then again, neither one of us play quarterback, so I think that we're okay. You don't want to have to apologize. <laughs> For what you do on a boat. That's all I'm saying. There you go. Well, j- just remember, here in Vegas now, it's, only, it's only four to a table. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so you need a very tall plate. If uh... very, very go. Very, very yeah. tall, slender plate. Exactly, my friend. And yeah, I don't even know what you're talking about. But, neither do uh, I. I love but, sushi. But I'll yeah. tell you what, I'm not a sushi guy, and uh, I usually don't fare too well with uh, chopsticks and stuff as well either. So I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, stick with my knife and fork. How's that? Good. More for me. All right. There you go. Not, not sure if the model's going to feel safe in that scenario. It's <laughs> <laughs> really funny. That's good stuff. That's what we do here. Yeah, we're here all night. All right, brother. Take care. See you later. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. Check Ballpark Frank, myself, and Trevor Manich. Yeah, the 5 show, the 8 p.m. show, and the after midnight show. Try the view. Try the view. <laughs> I'm here till Thursday. Go get him, Shrek. All right, appreciate Trevor Maddich for joining us. We go from one Sacramento Sports Hall of Famer to possibly a future uh, one as James Donaldson is going to join us coming up next. The seven foot two former NBA star. We will talk with him next hour. We've got Scott Spritzer. We'll talk about some college basketball as well. Plenty of stuff on the board there. It is a Wednesday edition of the TC Martin Show. Hi, this is Bill Beer, and you're listening to the TC Martin Show. Don't forget, get on over to the William Hill Sportsbooks and get the William Hip Mobile app. It is so easy to use and get your chance to get some free money into your account. Real simple. Use the promo code TC50 when you open up an account for the very first time. Go to the sportsbook, deposit at least $50 in your account, use the promo code TC50. They will match it with an additional $50, and you've got free money to play with. With all the games this weekend, college football, the NFL, and everything else out there as well. William Hill Sportsbooks, they are everywhere here in Las Vegas. And of course, you can visit the William Hill Sportsbook at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas, our Friday home, each and every Friday. Come on out and see the show and get signed up from 2 to 4 p.m. on Fridays. Yeah, so come on by and see us on Friday. Uh, get your William Hill uh, Sportsbook account ready to go, and then, uh, you know, get ready to roll with the weekend. Get ready to roll. There we go. All right. Join us right now is the uh, former uh, NBA 
veteran. 14 years he played in the league, had a 20-year career overall, including overseas. A seven-foot-two center, and most people remember him for his days playing with the Dallas Mavericks. He also played with the Utah Jazz and the New York Knicks, an NBA All-Star, and uh, pride of Sacramento, California, my hometown as well, James Donaldson. James, thanks for taking the time and joining us. TC, hey, all right. How you doing today? How you guys doing today? We are great, my friend. We appreciate you uh, taking the time and enjoying this. As I like to say, James, uh, another seven-footer from Sacramento, and, and a lot of people probably don't realize this, that actually the time that you were in high school, there were two seven-footers. They had yourself and then a good friend of the program here, Big Bill Cartwright, who joins us all the time. You guys actually played yeah. against each other at the same time. Bill, of course, went to Elk Grove yeah. High, and you went to Burbank. Uh, and you know what Bill told me? He said, you know, I remember those battles against James. He goes, but he had 100 yeah. pounds on me at that time. <laughs> <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> That's right. Because Bill was a stick. No, he was a stick, you know? Yeah. And I remember those days. I mean, this is just when I was getting started with basketball. I only played my senior year in high school at my first my first time trying to play basketball. I played against Bill Cartwright twice during the season. Now, how how did how did the coaches not manage to get you out on the court before your senior year? (laughs) Well, you know, they tried. They tried for the first time I walked on the high school campus. And I just, I was one of those kids where I wasn't very athletic. I didn't really like sports. I was a good student. So I'm always in my books. I'm always staying and doing my homework and everything else. But sports, I just didn't grow up in a sports oriented family. And so it just wasn't really emphasized. And plus, I wasn't that good. I, I just didn't feel I was that good. I didn't look very athletic. I was a big old chunky, hefty kid. Uh, and it took two years for my high school coach to finally get me to come on out and try out for the basketball team. Actually, during my junior year in high school, I started practicing with the team, never played a game, always behind the scenes. In my senior year, I finally played my first game. You know what? For a lot of people that don't know, that is not that uncommon of a story. Because and you probably, you remember this guy too. I'm going to mention right now, Charles Mann. And Charles Mann was yeah. he went to Valley High School in Sacramento. Went on to win three Super Bowls with the Redskins. Very similar story where he never even played until the junior year of of high school. Yeah. And the coaches tried to get him out to play football. And then next thing you know, he's out there playing. And then he got a scholarship to to go to UNR. And next thing you know, he's yep. you know in the NFL and winning Super Bowl. So. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's so, my story. Yeah, that's, so, that's the journey I took. So I got a little bit of a James Donaldson story, and this is one James doesn't even know because we actually shared a court together. Uh, I'm going to throw a flashback at you right here, Reichmuth Park in South Sacramento. Uh, I still remember this. So me and my, uh. my me and my buddy, it was like it was a summertime, probably you know during the off season for you. I want to say early '80s, and we go to Reichmuth Park, and we're always looking for games, that sort of thing. And it was a quiet afternoon, and and uh, me and my buddy are shooting around, and there's this guy, and we said, "Well, this guy looks familiar." I mean, who is this seven-footer? And we were kind of all shy and everything, really didn't want to say anything. And then we say, hey, uh, yeah, we, you want to play some two-on-two? And you looked over and you said, uh, yeah. And then, well, what's your name? And he just stuck out his hand and says, I'm James. That's it. And then in my wow. mind, I'm going like, he didn't say, 
And that's how I remember that you weren't, I mean, you're so humble. Not like, oh, I'm James Donaldson, NBA player, whatever. So right. we go, we play at Reichmuth Park. We have two on two. Some guy we just threw on James's team. And me and my buddy, big game James. And so we, I never forget this. So we're playing two on two. And, and my buddy James, he, he loves mm. shooting from the outside. He played at, at Sac City and Sac State. He hits a jumper from yeah. about 25. I hit one from deep and this and that. And then that was the only two buckets that we got. The rest of the time, <laughs> it, it, was, it was big game James Donaldson that took over from there. <laughs> That's right. Inside, inside. There, there you go. There was a bunch of dunks on that court, outdoor court at Wrightwood Park. And we said, wow, That's we just right. got, we got handed to us by, a, by an NBA guy. <laughs> that is funny. Well, great, great memories, yeah. yeah. I, I'm still well, trying thanks. to get over the part that you said that you were shy when you went up to him. Yeah, well, I said, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. yeah me too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 That, that's the fictitious part of the story from, that is from true. my hearing. That is true. That is, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> too funny. Oh, wow. Hey, Jim. Well, well it's, been a lot, it's been a lot of years, CC. I'm glad we reconnected here. You got it. All right. Hey, you had some, people will remember you had some great years uh, with Dallas. I mean, those teams yeah. with the Mavericks, yourself, Mark Aguirre, one of my personal favorites, and Franks, too, from DePaul. We love Mark Aguirre. Yeah. Sam Perkins was on that team. Rolando Blackman, yeah. Roy Tarpley. I mean, really, yeah. that team really put the Mavericks on the map because I don't think yeah. they really – they were a playoff team before you guys all assembled there. That's right. Yeah, we all came in about the mid-'80s when we finally hit stride. I joined the team uh 1985 and stayed there until 92, so I was there for seven years. And during those years, we were competing you know, head-to-head with the Lakers during the Western Conference Finals one year. We lost in the seventh game. But every year we were a playoff team against the great Portland teams with Clyde Drexler and those guys. Uh, the Houston teams with the Twin Towers, Akeem and Ralph Sampson. Uh, San Antonio with uh, George Gervin and Artis Gilmore. Uh, we had a lot of great competitive basketball, and we were always in the mix right there with those guys. Could never quite get over the hump. That, that belonged to the Showtime Lakers. Yep. You know, you, you mentioned Artis Gilmore there, and I went to the Chicago Stadium many a time and saw the A-Train play and got the pleasure of meeting him yeah. after a game once years ago. I never thought that he got his proper respect and media coverage in that. How good was he? Because yeah. everybody talked about Jabbar and all the other ones, and rightfully so mm-hmm. back then, but he was also one of the most dominant centers, but a lot of people missed out on a good part of his career for being in the ABA. That's right, that's right. Uh, obvious Hall of Famer, of course, but, you know, most of his, probably his best early years were in the ABA, and then when he got to the NBA, he was on some, you know, okay teams, but nothing great. Uh, Chicago Bulls, he played for for a while. Uh, San Antonio Spurs, they had some good playoff teams, but they could never get over the hump. So, and those were, you know, compared to the Showtime Lakers and the New York Knicks and everybody else back in those days, the Boston Celtics, those were the high-profile teams that we played against all the time. San Antonio and Chicago didn't matter at that time. You know, it was such a big man's game at that point in time, James. You mentioned Artis Gilmore, Moses Malone, Daryl Dawkins, yeah. Kareem still playing at the time. You mentioned Akeem Olajuwon. Those are just off the top of our heads here. Was Lanier still playing back then? Uh, Bob Lanier, too. Yeah, yeah. Early, yeah he, he yeah. played into yeah. the 80s. Yeah. Exactly. So matching up against those guys pretty much night in and night out, who, who, is, uh, who is the toughest guy to guard? 
Wow, you know, when I hear that question, I always have to break it down into two different categories. Uh, the most unstoppable player, not necessarily the toughest, the most unstoppable is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with that sky hook. And, and big left-handers like myself, uh, Bob Lanier, Artis Gilmore, Nate Thurman, you know, we could jump as high as we could with our left-dominant hand, and Kareem would just get a few more inches over over us with that sky hook. And by the time you settle back to the ground and you looked over your shoulder, that ball is nestling right in through the net. And he was the most unstoppable player. Now, the toughest player for me to guard and to play against those years was Moses Malone. Moses was a whirlwind of activity and just uh, ferocious on the boards. Could care less about his shooting percentage. He'd throw it up there off the glass, go get it, throw it again, go get it. You know, yeah. And it would just wear, wear you out. He would just wear you out. Uh, Akeem Olajuwon came along after him and was a new, improved version of Moses Malone. But Moses was the absolute toughest player I ever played against. Yeah, Moses would get four rebounds on one possession. Like you said, he'd throw it up there, (laughs) throw a couple (laughs) elbows, muscle around, board, board, board. Okay, put back. There it is. That's right. That was him. That's how he played. And, and, And just boundless energy. And Akeem was the same way. Not quite as uh, raw, you know. Akeem was a little more refined, but the same tremendous amount of energy every single game. You mentioned the physicality back in those days. How long would those players last in today's game with the fouls called? Well, you know, I I think we all knew how to play with our backs to the basket back then. So uh, I don't think any of us were very foul-prone. We stayed in the games. I played dozens of games in my career playing all 48 minutes, you know, and taking up three or four fouls. But, you know, you play rough, you play rugged. Uh, They let us play a little bit more with with the physicality of it all than they do now. Uh, So we could really bump and grind each other down the low post, especially. Uh, I had some, uh, you know, classic matchups with Artis Gilmore. He was probably the biggest, strongest guy I played against. Uh, you know, the uh, McFilthy and McNasty up there with the bad boys, you know, playing against Rick Mahorn and, yep. and Bill Lambier. You know, they, they'd put you in the sandwich lock. And uh, I remember as a rookie playing against the Washington Bullets, Elvin Hayes and Wes Unsell, where they just sandwiched me and threw me to the ground one time. <laughs> you know, that's how it was. And you just had to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep going. And Bill Walton was tougher than a lot of people realize, too. Yeah. Bill Walton wasn't afraid to mix it up. I remember watching him and Gilmore go out right. one night where they were just beating the heck out of each other. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Bill was great, you know. Unfortunately, hampered by a lot of injuries throughout his career, but uh, you know, he was – what a skill. What what a skill set he brought to the game for a big man. All right, James Donaldson joins us. 14-year NBA veteran, 20-year overall career. You know, you mentioned the Mavericks and playing with that team. You went – well, you got drafted by Seattle, the old Seattle Supersonics at that point in time. Yes. And I know that franchise and that city still close to your heart that you're living up in Seattle. But then you got what yeah. traded to, to the Clippers, and then you get moved to the Mavericks. Talk about – because people got to remember, <laughs> back in those days, the Clippers – I mean, no one wanted to play for the Clippers, right, James? Give me your thoughts about yes. landing with the Clippers and then getting the news that, hey, I'm yeah. going to Dallas. Yeah, the, the, the Clippers uh, – <laughs> were always a, a talent-laden team. It was kind of the dumping ground for NBA veterans kind of near the end of their prime. Uh, Bill Walton was there, played with him for several years. Uh, Norm Nixon, Derek Smith, Greg Kelser, Michael Brooks, 
Jerome Whitehead, uh, so many, Craig Hodges, Ricky Pierce. I mean, we all played there together with the Clippers. And we, for the life of us, could not win. I mean, we had T-shirts made up one year where we were going for 30. That was the big old sign on the front of the shirt, going for 30. 30 wins is what we were going for with that team in 82 games. That's how terrible we are. But we look great on paper. We look great in the lineup, all those all-star names. But the chemistry was just always wrong, and we just couldn't couldn't put it together. And then you get the news you're going to Dallas. All of a sudden, oh, God. hallelujah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, I've died. I've died and gone to heaven. This was <laughs> a, ta- a tailor-made situation for me to go to Dallas. Who, you know, they were known up until that point as a donut hole team. They they had a hole in the middle. Yeah. And they had no big guys to fill it. No big guys who could play it. And I I came in and, and fit right into what they needed, and did what I needed to do all those years. And we had some very 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 good teams. You were like the cinnamon roll. There it is. No hole anymore. There it is. James Donaldson. Right. He's he's the cinnamon roll. <laughs> There it is. That's right. <laughs> hey, who was the? Yeah. Let me ask you: Who was the most influential person in your life from a basketball perspective? Wow. Well, you know, I'm just I'm just publishing a book now. I hope we get to it in a moment. Oh, but yeah. I co-dedicated I co-dedicated my book to my Washington State coach, university coach uh, George Raveling, yes, and my Seattle SuperSonic coach Lenny Wilkins. I co-dedicated it to those two guys because they really helped me through some very, very difficult times a couple of years ago. And they've been there for, with me throughout these last 40 years. George knew me right out of high school. Lenny picked up after I graduated from WSU and was drafted by the Sonics. So it was kind of like a baton handoff uh, with those two great guys who were so instrumental in not only in me becoming a basketball player, that's that's fine and dandy, but becoming a, a really good young man and a good young professional i couldn't have been in better hands yes two two of the greats like you said all right james donaldson has a book and you just mentioned it celebrating your gift of life uh from the verge of suicide to a life of purpose in joy talk a little bit about that and again i don't think a lot of people really knew th- yeah. the struggles that you actually went through after your nba playing days yeah, yeah, well, uh, and it's not all that uncommon, and this is one of the purposes of me telling my story, is just trying to get more men to acknowledge first that they have a problem and that it's okay to reach out for help. Uh, us men, we just don't want to deal with seeming to be weak or vulnerable or crying or anything like that. And here I am, a, a very large African-American man, and African-American communities are notoriously poor in reaching out for mental health help as well. So this is why I wrote my book. And it all started back in 2015, where I had a 12-hour uh, emergency open-heart surgery. Uh, I, and and uh, it, it was from an aortic section, which has only a 2% survivability rate. So I'm, I'm one of the lucky 2% wow. that survived this thing. Uh, flat on my back for pretty much all of 2015, intensive care for two and a half months, medically induced coma. Uh, by the grace of God and miracle of miracles, I was able to pull through this. Thing. Uh, and the next year, I had another similar surgery, uh, not quite as emergency uh, 
feel it as it needed to be, but I, it, it needed to be done. So I had four major surgeries in five years uh, for my heart, my right lung, uh, an arterial bypass to con- increase blood flow and everything else. After all of that, uh, I did recover finally, you know, mid-216 or so, 2016. Uh, my mother passed away that year. My, my wife uh, and I divorced, and that was very painful. A long-running business I had. I had a physical therapy uh, sports rehabilitation business for 28 years. It finally just ground to a halt, and there went my income. There went my identity. There went my purpose, uh, my reason for living. My health was still very, very iffy most days. Uh, climbing a flight of stairs, I was ex- I'm exhausted. I'm hanging on to the, the guardrails to get up the stairways. I can't walk more than three or four or five blocks at a time without feeling I'm going to faint and fall out. This was the last five years, TC, and uh, that depression hit me in 2018, and uh, anxiety and suicidal ideation. I mean, I was right on the verge of ending it all. Uh, I, I, I hung in there for 12 months. It took 12 months to work my way through total darkness and try to finally find that light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what my book is about. After 12 months, I finally, the darkness started lifting a little bit. Uh, I was able to receive uh, the love and the encouragement and the support of people who were always there. I just couldn't see them. I couldn't feel them for those 12 months. Uh, but the first thing I did, and this is, this is my case for everybody out there going through something like this, I, I realized something was wrong. And then I reached out to my medical professionals. Uh, they put me on prescription medication. They got me some behavior health counselors. I pulled together a small group of intimate friends who had known me for 30 or 40 years and put them all around me. Uh, George Rapping and Lenny Wilkins were two of those friends. And I had them call me and check on me a couple times a week. And they all put their hand up and said, hey, you can call me 2 in the morning if you need to. And on many occasions, I did. But that 12 months, D.C., was uh, I've been through some tough things before, but I had never, ever been through anything like that. And so now the whole next chapter of my life is all about being a voice and an advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention. And so I really hope to help tens of thousands, if not millions of people out there who are going through this current pandemic and will emerge from this with a lot of mental traumas that they need to get addressed as well. And this is, like you said, not an uncommon tale, not just for athletes, former athletes, but but people in general, and then not knowing how to deal with mental health issues. And the, what you went through, James, is it's... It's unfathomable, uh, but the way you recovered, yeah. just uh, I- incredible. And uh, we appreciate you sharing you know, your story, and we want to drive people to get this book as well, too, because I know there's a lot of inspiration in this book uh, as well, too. Thank you. Yes, there really is. And, and the helpful exercises at the end of every chapter where the reader can write in uh, their, their thoughts and their suggestions into the lines that I provide on the pages. Uh, because I wanted to be a uh, introspective kind of exercise where people are saying, "Wow, this is me." And what James is talking about is exactly what I'm going through. And uh, so, 
this is what it's all about, TC. Thank you. Did you find that in writing this book that it was as therapeutic and as helpful to yourself as you're hoping it's going to be for other people out there that read it? Very, very much so. And, and even more so, it's therapeutic for me to tell the story. Uh, you can hear my voice. It still gets me emotional and bringing me to tears a lot of time talking about what I went through. But this is why I'm still here, and I have a a refound purpose, uh, a refound focus of life, and why I'm still here to do the work that I need to do. Uh, 2015 was a a really tough year on a lot of former NBA players. Uh, Moses Malone died. Daryl Dawkins died. Roy Tarpley died. Uh, Jerome Kersey, a year or two later, we lost so many NBA players while I was trying to recover, I could have easily have passed along with those guys. But God left me here, mm-hmm. and he gave me the vision to say, hey, start up your foundation. Get out there and help as many people as you can. Use your platform that you've built over 20 years of basketball, and people will listen, especially men and especially communities of mm-hmm. color. We've got to get the help to these folks as best we can. And that's why I'm still here. And we are so glad that you're here, brother. You know, again, a great NBA career. And then, again, running for Seattle City Council years ago as well, too. You've been always a, a community activist, yeah. uh, especially up there. I know people in Sacramento uh, still love you and talk about you all the time. Uh, you know, fortunate yeah. to you know, have you involved with our, our Sacramento Sports Hall of Fame venture there as well, too. And, and thankful for our mutual friend, Dusty Baker, for, for putting us uh, yeah. together here, too. And, uh, again, just uh, it's a great Thank story. You. The book is celebrating your gift of life from the verge of suicide to a life of purpose and joy. And, James, uh, how can people get this book? Well, I think I sent you uh, also a link to my website yes. for my foundation, yourgiftoflife.org. So if you go there uh, on the home page, there's a link that you can click on to order the book, and uh, and or you can email me at James D at yourgiftoflife dot org, and that's my direct email to me for my foundation work. Uh, I I make myself available and accessible to everybody, even people on the street. They want to sit down and talk about what they're going through. I sit down and talk to them, and I share. And I give them hope and inspiration that they can make it through, too. So that's how your listeners can get a direct copy. And I autograph, personally autograph each one. So they can put a little note in there of who they want me to autograph it to, whether it's for themselves or for a loved one that they care about. Uh, the book is coming off the press in about 10 days, and it'll be shipped out all over the country uh, in time for Christmas holidays. So uh, I think it's a great Christmas gift, even though it's a very difficult topic, but a lot of people are really going through tough times right now, and the holidays make it even worse for a lot of us sometimes because we're on our own so much. This is true. All right, well, you look great. You sound great, my friend. We really appreciate the time, and uh, we're going to have you back on on the program again uh, on a regular basis, hopefully. Uh, Great stuff, my friend. Great. I would love it, TC. Thank you so much. Okay, you be well. Be blessed, everybody out there. Thank you. Thank you. All right, James. Great talking to you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you. James Donaldson, uh, the former NBA player, the 14-year NBA vet, the NBA All-Star. Again, 
has a book out detailing his life, uh, and it's a good one. Celebrating your gift of life from the verge of suicide of life to purpose and joy. Yeah, and, and it just goes to show you, too, that, you know, regardless of what somebody's past was or what you think they might have and that kind of stuff, you never know what is going on behind somebody else's closed doors, what's going on in their head and that. So, you know, we all struggle with different things, and uh, mm-hmm. it's cool that he's had the courage in that to do it. Uh, as a reader, I'm looking forward to yeah. uh, potentially reading this book. And as you know, this is, you know, part of the stuff that we cover, you know, on the show that we've talked to several athletes who have gone through stuff like that, and and there's stories out there, I think, that people find, uh, you know, very, you know, there's a lot of connectivity there, you know, what people are going through. So uh, it's great. It's great. And I appreciate James Donaldson for joining us today. All right. We come back for our number two. Scott Spreitzer is going to join us. We're going to talk a little college basketball and also a little preview of the NFL and take a look at last night's game as well, too. Ballpark Frank, T.C. Martin right here on a wild, wacky Wednesday. Call it what you want right here. T.C. Martin Show. <laughs> 